Happy Halloween, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. This is Arnold T. Blumberg. And Natalie Latofsky. This is our second annual Halloween episode. We did one when we first started, and the one uh, you came up with a motif last time where we picked three movies. Mm-hmm. We went with all of the masks from Halloween 3, the uh, Silver Shamrock masks. So we kind of picked a movie that matched each, the uh, pumpkin, the witch, and the skull. And this time, we're doing a triple haunting. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be covering the original The Haunting from 1963, which has very quickly become one of our go-to movies, uh, and also perfectly suits this show, which itself was based at least initially on the idea that some of our favorite films are films in which we spend time in a house for a while where that environment closes you in and gives you a space to be in for a while. And The Haunting is definitely one of them. And uh, we're also going to be covering the 1999 remake of The Haunting and a movie that falls between those two, The Legend of Hell House from 1973, which is a sort of British take on the whole thing uh, by way of Richard Matheson's uh, uh, plagiarizing of Shirley Jackson. But we'll get to all that. And since it's that time of year and we did uh, get to watch it uh, through Peacock uh, and we have in the past on Doctor of the Dead covered the entire Halloween franchise, which remains my all time favorite slasher franchise, we will briefly share some thoughts on the latest installment Halloween Kills, which follows the very, very nice uh, 2018 sequel that attempted to provide a little bit of a rebooted timeline. We won't spend much time talking about Halloween Kills. No, not really. But first off, I think we should start off with our main films. And you wanted to do them in chronological order. So like, rather than talk about the two hauntings Mm -hmm. first, we're actually going to talk about Legend of Hell House in there. And there's a very good reason for that, especially as we've revisited all these. And in fact, for the two hauntings, we revisited them twice because we watched these back in September to plan for an episode and then... I wanted to watch them again just to get them back in my head a bit. But we're going to start off with one of the truly great classic pieces of horror cinema. And it also follows neatly from having done Psycho and the Birds. Is another great classic from the same year as the Birds, in fact, is The Haunting. Thank heaven somebody's here. My name's Eleanor Lance. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Theodora, just Theodora. We're going to be great friends, Theo. Like sisters? based on Shirley Jackson's book, The Haunting of Hill House, which I think has become far more prevalent in modern pop culture right now, thanks to the Netflix series that Mike Flanagan did. Yeah, I think when I bring up The Haunting, or when I have brought it up over the last couple weeks and talking to people, pretty much all of them have said, oh, is that related to The Haunting of Hill House, like that Netflix series? And I was like, yes, but much before, and the book before that, so let's go back a little ways. Also, I guess we should say right from the outset, we will not be talking about that show. Uh, I think we may have shared a thought or two about it in the past. We actually both tried to watch it and never got past, what was it, the first episode? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it wasn't quite our cup of tea, but we also kind of understand why it works for a lot of people. We just happen to have a favorite adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel, which is The Haunting. And so for us, that's what works and the show didn't. We also tend not to enjoy 
series as much as we enjoy movies. I'm not going to flat out say that this is the case with that. And also because we didn't watch the whole thing, I can't say it completely authoritatively. But Mm -hmm. one thing I've grown to truly dislike in the era of streaming is how many times you will watch an eight or ten or six part series and discover that they had a two hour movie in it. Yeah. But because of the nature of the business, it seems to be driving a lot of people to create series out of things that are only an hour 45, two hour plot. Not That's not saying it's the case with that because we didn't go through that whole thing. But we're here to talk about the films and that's what we're going to do. And we love The Haunting. And in fact, like several things we've talked about before on the show, this is a movie that was never necessarily at the top of my list when I was younger. I always liked it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't revisit it quite as often as I've revisited it with you. And it's become, I think, one of our really strong annual traditions for Halloween. I think last year it was actually on TCM on Halloween. It just happened yeah, to be part of their sense. lineup. And we really both were struck by what a great atmospheric movie it is for Halloween specifically. It's just such a great sound throughout it's such mm-hmm. a great movie to have one that sets the mood and i think you're right i think it was on the day yeah there is a slight connection too and we just today while looking for something to put on for a while had on house and haunted hill again because that's the way we roll on we Shutter. often have house haunted hill on and i mean that came out in 59 it's unrelated but people always get confused you know i've had that conversation as well several times the last few weeks yeah and the thing is the novel came out in 59 castles movie came out in 59 there are some interesting parallels including the the housekeeper and his wife and the there's there's stuff there Mm -hmm. but anyway this is the robert wise directed film robert wise i'm sure i've talked about before on here and will again just an astounding career this man had with such an extraordinary scope there are people that that are directors that are known for one genre or one kind of thing wise was good at everything and like whether that was i feel like i've said this before recently um but am i repeating myself i don't know if you are it's only because it's worth saying again it's, like, right. it's like a bob clark thing right like right. bob clark was another one of those directors who kind of crossed genres yeah because i can't think we've talked about why stuff recently but i think what's happening is i'm i'm doing one of the things i'm doing lately is uh i've been doing a presentation for osher institute again doing some lectures and i talked about robert wise i think when i talked about andromeda strain with them and i think i have that in my head still but i mean like wise did everything from west side story to andromeda strain to this too at the end of his career basically as a director star trek the motion picture which in many respects is the film that kind of knocked a lot of the enthusiasm out of him because of its legendary production story which if anybody's a star trek fan you know all about and what a torturous experience that was for a lot of people on it but it's amazing what a director wise was and the kind of variance in in genre and storytelling and this is a beautifully made movie and particularly when you watch it now today as restored as it can be mm-hmm. it's such a crisp and clean and beautiful looking black and white film and i'll add too just right at the outset we couldn't find it streaming anywhere however you can purchase a digital copy of this movie from most of the online streaming services for like 4.99 and it is worth every penny 
to just own a copy of it that you could pull up anytime you want. It looks amazing. And you all know by now, if you're listening to our show, we do full spoilers for everything. We're going to talk about the beginnings and ends and everything in between. But also, surely many of you probably already know this movie well. And if not, this particular version of it anyway. And also, uh, full disclosure, I've never actually read the book. I've never read Shirley Jackson's novel. So for me, this is the definitive version of that story. And I'm happy with that. And in this, you've got Richard Johnson who genre fans and people who know me with all the zombie stuff I do will also remember well that probably his other main iconic role from our perspective is being, uh, you know, the the scientist, the mad scientist, one would say, at the heart of all the shenanigans in Zombie 2. <laughs> Very different point in his career, obviously. The boat can leave now. Tell the crew. But here, looking much more groomed, uh, he's Dr. Markway, who is investigating the paranormal and has assembled a group of people that he believes, through their various life experiences, are sensitive to the many presences, spiritual presences, that might be living in Hill House. Among those are Julie Harris as Eleanor, who is... For all intents and purposes, our POV character, because mm-hmm. we also get a narration, a voiceover. Say, we get inside her head. So, I mean, we know yeah. her thoughts, um, and we don't really know anyone else's thoughts. So she's definitely our POV. And then there's a, a psychic-sensitive Theo, played by Claire Bloom, who Doctor Who fans might also remember as being the Doctor's mother during the Russell T. Davis era. And then Russ Tamblin who has a fascinating career, you know, as a song and dance man in his youth and then going into this and then many years later coming back in Twin Peaks. And he's Luke Sanderson from the family that owns Hill House and he kind of wants to turn a profit on this place. And he's their skeptic. He's not interested in any kind of paranormal. He just wants to basically the opposite. He wants to prove that there is nothing paranormal so that people will stop being so freaked out by the house. And when he ultimately inherits it, he'll be able to sell it for a profit. And I'll just throw out a couple other things of interest for uh, genre fans as far as casting is concerned. I mentioned Doctor Who already. There's a brief appearance by Valentine Dial in this as Mr. Dudley, the, uh, the caretaker, whose wife delivers one of the most important speeches in the entire film and is the source of many individual quotes that people remember. No one lives any nearer than town. No one will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. But Dial was uh, a British radio and voiceover legend with an extreme booming voice that actually doesn't sound quite as much here. Doctor Who fans will know him as the Black Guardian from Doctor Who. And then... As Dr. Markway's wife, Grace, who eventually comes into the mix to cause additional distress for herself and others, is Lois Maxwell, who many people remember as Money Penny from a whole bunch of Bond movies. And Operation Kid Brother. <laughs> that you might know more if you watch Mystery Science Theater. But anyway, throw a bunch of these people into a really, really busy house with lots of furniture and wallpaper patterns. Which, Which is, I say, it's another thing it has in common with House on Haunted Hill, actually, in that there are so many clashing patterns that it, like, makes you dizzy to even, like, 
think about being in the house, which is part of the disorientation. Yeah. It's it's yeah. part of why it works. And the goal, of course, is to see what happens. And stuff happens. And, of course, this is a movie that I would say is an excellent example of the correct way to do what has become the in vogue now referring to a slow burn in mm. horror. This is what a slow burn is. Not doing nothing for an hour and 40 minutes and then doing an oh-so-clever twist at the end and saying goodnight, everybody, and then making sure you have the A24 logo on it before you <laughs> distribute it. No, what a slow burn is, is the haunting. And Robert Wise and everybody involved doing an excellent job of allowing you to spend time in this house, getting to know it, getting to know the people, and then starting to see the distress and the anxiety ramp up as evidence begins to accumulate that perhaps something is going on here and that Hugh Crane, who created the house, may have left his presence behind, among others. But it is also, in many respects, a story of mental collapse and illness and a quest for identity. And it's really the story of Eleanor, her psychological problems that are either enhanced or reflected by the experience in the house. So it's a metaphor also, this whole movie. I mean, the way that Shirley Jackson wrote was essentially if there was a woman who was emotionally unstable and felt out of place and didn't know what she wanted out of her life, that's your Shirley Jackson insert character. Right. That's her. That's the author. She was a very, very talented writer who was just pretty much emotionally a wreck and just absolutely torturous, you know, her entire life. And it definitely reflects in the women that she writes in her novels and in her short stories. Um, it's definitely her putting herself in that story. And it's also reflected in the fact that there's a lot of things related to this movie. We don't necessarily always do like, I mean, our point in talking about these movies, what did we think? You know, what what did we derive from it? And, you know, what sort of thematic stuff do we think is interesting? Or, like, do we like or dislike it? And it's not necessarily a catalog of behind-the-scenes minutiae. I like sharing things like that if there's something that's relevant. But there's a great deal of... This is one of those ones. I mean, like a lot of movies we've been talking about yeah. lately. Whole books have been written. So there's only so much you can do. There, There is, however, anyone that knows a lot about The Haunting also knows that what you just described also extends to the film itself because Julie Harris herself, who played mm -hmm. Eleanor, was herself going through severe depression at the time. And it affected her relationship with the cast off camera and it informed her performance on camera. And arguably you could say then that this movie is as much a document of what Harris as an actor was going through and it helped to make it the movie that it is. It's capturing mm -hmm. some actual distress that she was channeling through this character. And, you know, again, when you follow it all the way to the end, the movie pretty much makes it clear enough that I think most of us are comfortable believing, yes, there is something supernatural going on in this house. I think if nothing else, the moment where you finally get one of the 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 key visuals everybody remembers the the door actually breathing in and out you have to believe something is genuinely happening but 
you could also interpret a lot of this movie as one person's descent into suicidal madness and the fact that ultimately when she chooses to do that, it's about someone who is struggling desperately with her place in the world and her decision to kill herself. And the house is just a pretext. But, you know, we also know, though, on a certain narrative level, yes, in fact, something is going on in this house that is supernatural. And I think that's one of the reasons why for both of us, this movie just works so well. Because in the sort of trying to be like clever, postmodern, slow burn, whatever's that are being made a lot <laughs> in, in more recent years, it always feels like they decide you have to make the choice that it's either ultimately a movie about something supernatural or it's a movie about someone's emotional breakdown and like descent into madness. But this just so skillfully weaves both those stories together to the point where even at the the start of it, the first time that something sort of quasi-supernatural is happening in the house, it's not happening just to Nell. It's happening to both Nell and Theo at the same time. So right at the start of them being in that house, number one, you can see that this isn't necessarily just Nell imagining things because Theo's experiencing it too. And it also sets up a scenario where the two women in the house experience something that the two men don't experience. And so it then becomes an instance where they sort of are left wondering, is this some sort of form of hysteria? And I'll point out, and this is particularly more relevant when we get to the remake, even though that sets up a scenario then where the men could turn around and say, well, I didn't see anything. There is a feeling to me throughout this movie that Richard Johnson's Mark Way is honest in his dealings with his subjects. He wants to find out if there's something more to the world. And when Nell or Theo is saying something's happening and he isn't encountering it, I get the feeling that even in those moments, it's not about like telling the women, well, maybe it's all in your mind. He wants to believe He's really the molder of this situation, really, right? <laughs> he wants to believe, and so he doesn't dismiss anything. He just wants to have proof. Mm -hmm. So in contrast, we'll talk about later, I think that Mark Way is a more or less positive presence. I mean, for the most part, there's still elements where you could say you put these people, particularly a very fragile person in that scenario, mm -hmm. it's a bad thing. I did also want to mention before you go on, it's worth noting that a lot of what we're talking about, about Eleanor's psychological condition and the theme in the movie, comes not from Shirley Jackson, but from Nelson Gidding's script. Because Gidding believed it was actually a metaphor for a psychological condition. And actually, if he had had his way, the script would have leaned more heavily into basically being Shutter Island. Mm. His idea was, she's at the hospital, Mark Way is her therapist, and all the banging is shock treatment and all the things are symbolic of other things. And apparently when they talk to Jackson, Jackson's like, I meant the book to be supernatural, but they decided they wanted a bit of both. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we're talking about that we like in the movie is the result of getting 
adding his sense of what that is to Shirley Jackson's book. So I mean, I'm glad they pulled him back on it. I think it would have been horrible if it turned out it was. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. No. Um, But yeah, what I was going to say, too, when they have that first experience with the supernatural, one of the things that's striking, it's sort of, you know, I framed it as uh, the men don't experience. So, like, is it something that's just hysteria? But that's more so the audience perspective of thinking, are the women just experiencing this more so than the actual, like, plot of the film? Because the very first thing he does when they describe what they experience is he reasons why the two men didn't experience it, which is they thought they heard a dog barking in the house and they went chasing the noise through the house and outside. And in his own sort of, I guess, pseudoscience way, determines that the sound of that dog barking was the house's way of separating the two groups so that it could like focus its attention on the women, whether that's because of the fact that the two of them are the only two people in the house who have actually had some kind of psychic connection um, or just because they're women, because of location, whatever it is, he hasn't zeroed in on it, but his goal was to bring this huge group of like, psychically touched people and these two women are basically the only ones who inevitably showed up and so he's sort of pinning all of his hopes on proving the supernatural which is his life's work and you know his passion and wanting to prove that there is such a thing essentially as a soul it's like this is all in service to him proving an almost religious like theory using the supernatural to say that we do have a spirit we do have a soul that there is sort of more to the human body than just the body and that that's ultimately what he's trying to prove and it's genuine and it's earnest you see if ghosts which are pure spirits come from man then perhaps it's possible someday to have individuals whose Spiritual caliber far surpasses anything humanity has yet known. And even Luke, who's just there to make sure they don't like mess up the nice things in the house that he's going to one day inherit. He doesn't really make fun of them for it. I mean, he's he's flippant, but that's just his personality. He's flippant, but what I like about him is I never feel like I hate him. Like Mm -hmm. he's not he's not an offensive character. He's kind of like you get the impression maybe he's playing it up more than he really is but you get the impression he's like a rich playboy type he he at least wants to project the appearance of he gets around a bit and maybe he doesn't really but you know he he's kind of way. a lovable fool yeah but he and and not only that but there's a forget exactly where it falls but like i've said before there there are several scenes that i love and like like one of my all-time favorite moments in this is definitely the moment where nell thinks that theo's holding her hand that's mm-hmm. one of the great scare moments in the whole movie But another one I like, and I can't remember quite where it falls, maybe it is during the door scene, is this long take of Tamla at one point where he just looks so completely shaken. 
but it's a moment when you suddenly realize here's the moment where Luke now 100% believes they're all correct. And he's now, and of course, it also is a great story arc for him. I don't usually think about him that much because mm -hmm. it's Eleanor. Sorry, Russ. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's Eleanor <laughs> and to a lesser extent, and, and to a certain extent, Eleanor and Theo together and to a lesser extent, Markway. And Luke seems like the fourth, like the one out for me a lot of the times, but really. I like you were about to say the fourth wheel, then you realize like, well, four wheels actually <laughs> make sense because it's, it's balanced. Four wheels make sense. His wife is the fifth wheel His when she the comes fifth in. Wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like. Luke doesn't seem as important sometimes, and yet he does have more of an arc in that he has the moment of realization that's made very clear. And also, he's the one that gets to deliver the last, like, living person's line at the end about how they should burn the house down. The person who wanted to make money from the house is now very comfortable with the idea that this place needs to be destroyed. And to salt the earth. Yeah, it's... <laughs> He's pretty intense about it. Mm -hmm. And I also, like you were mentioning about, um, oh, we were talking about some of the other uh, things that the screenwriter brought to it. Another thing that's significant about this movie, both for film history in general and the story specifically, is the fact that it explores to a certain extent a lesbian attraction between two characters. Theo is a lesbian, and that's made... According to Wikipedia and some sources, they say it's made very explicit in the film, whereas in Shirley Jackson's book, it was a little more subtle, apparently. I think but, it's explicit from a modern perspective. Yeah, I don't but... think it's explicit at all in terms of 1963. I think you need to see it. But it's there. I think it's there. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple moments where it's very clear what they're talking about. But she's drawn to Eleanor initially. Eleanor is receptive. And there's that's running under all of this is that connection and in particular the, the scene i always think of is the is when eleanor decides to lash out her way of doing that i can't remember the exact wording but she tells theo at one point like you know like you're one of nature's mistakes yeah. it's a it's a horrific thing to say that line more than any other in the movie underlines exactly what they're intending mm -hmm. because that's the point that she's using that as a means of attacking her the world is full of inconsistencies unnatural things nature's mistakes they're called you for instance but i certainly don't think it's explicit in any in any way then but even though a lot of people did pick up on it then they made it more directly an element of the character and as we'll see in the remake, of course, they, they leaned into it much more obviously in the remake because also it was a time where they were, could more comfortably do that. But they don't really make as much more use of it as a character dynamic than they did in this one, I think. Mm -hmm. But Yeah, I would agree on that point. And I think there's some really great subtle language that's used as well because Eleanor is very desperate to be normal and like regular but she's also desperate to be special and she's very conflicted between those two things and so you know in times when she's basically telling Theo like I'm not like you she's sort of telling her you know I am not attracted to you the way you're attracted to me although maybe she is and she's also saying I'm not like psychically touched the way you are but maybe i am mm -hmm. and you know she kind of tries to flirt with mark way 
partially because she's just enjoying being the center of attention for literally the first time in her entire life. And also because I think she's never been in any kind of romantic relationship and she's testing it out. And it's like Theo's trying to tell her like, hey, back off and watch yourself. And she gets mad and sort of is like, hey, what, you're jealous because I'm not paying attention to you. But in reality, it's because he's married Mm -hmm. and there's really no reason for that to have come up, I suppose, prior to his wife showing up. You know, they're not in a romantic entanglement. They're not on a romantic weekend getaway. They're taking part in a scientific experiment. So it's sort of irrelevant whether or not he's married, but he is. And so it's a very complicated sort of non-love love triangle that's going on. That there's something that draws all of them together. And arguably you could say the reason that they're the people that ended up there for that experiment is because the house drew the three of them in and drew them together because that was sort of the combined power that like made sense to the house and also it's one of many reasons why that's something in the movie that i think you can tease out and there's a subtlety to it that it's a mistake to make it any more direct than that which we will get to yes we Um, will uh but the way it works here is very nice because all the elements are there for you to put all this together But it also, if you choose not to put all of it together, is still a very pleasant, atmospheric, creepy film that allows you to dwell in this house for a while with these people and experience all of it. And this is definitely also, I mean, I I would say about any of the movies we watch that we really like, Mm -hmm. but this is definitely a movie that rewards multiple viewings in order to truly get the depth of a lot of the things going on. One thing I wanted to throw out just as a side thing that I just saw. I remember reading about this before, but it's interesting. We talk about like, you know, um, Theo's role and how obvious the lesbian angle is played or not. Is that apparently in the script, it didn't get as far, it looks like, as actually shooting anything. But in the original script, it was going the first time we were going to see Theo was back at her apartment getting ready to go to the house. And she was apparently supposed to be yelling out the window at someone who was apparently just leaving and we were going to see on the mirror in her apartment written in lipstick, I hate you, meaning that her girlfriend had just walked out on her. And they decided, everybody involved decided that was too explicit for them for the time and they decided to cut it and presumably cut it well before anything would be shot. But also what occurs to me is that would destabilize things enormously because we don't meet anybody except Eleanor before the house. Mm. And it's part of that good storytelling focuses it's her perspective so therefore we start with her and then we do we do also get mark wade going to visit the family to right. get the house but that's that makes sense because it sets up the story eleanor also has that opening that's almost uh rolled doll-esque or or the other person will show who now has also herself become she who will not be named much like one of her own villains it's a very British approach to having a protagonist whose family is terrible to them mm-hmm. and who's basically treating her not like a relative, but like a like a maid and like a caretaker. And she's been taking care of her mother who died. And therefore, the guilt of that is weighing heavily on her. And also pays half the rent on her sister's apartment, but has to sleep on the couch in the living room, even though like her sister is married and has a kid. And it's like they just 
under the guise of needing to take care of Nell because she's so fragile, basically take advantage of her. Uh, it's like the story of her life. Yeah. And it seems like one of the reasons that she's in that position is that she is someone who clearly has had struggles with mental illness and struggles with her emotional stability outside of her family treating her like trash. She's somebody who genuinely sort of in modern parlance would benefit from seeking out help. And that's not really a topic that got touched on in the sixties. It's also a great point that uh, I think we're starting to see more and more with a lot of things we watch Mm. is that if only this country actually had a robust healthcare system, the story wouldn't happen. She wouldn't have had to take care of her mother. She would have been able to take care of herself But also built into all of this is the fact that Nell probably is a psychic and a a bit of a witch or something like that. You know, that it's basically the reason Markway wants her involved is because it's one of the only documented cases of the paranormal that he could find that had actually had a clipping in a newspaper, which is that there were several days that stones like rained from the sky just onto their house. And I might be wrong, but if I remember correctly, Stephen King lifted that for Carrie also. He lifted a lot from a lot of places. A lot of sort of the tradition of storytelling, especially scary storytelling, is rooted in a lot of the same tropes and the same ideas. This is certainly not the first like haunted house story that that brings people in who are called to the house or has a protagonist who is feeling you know desperate and wanting a place to belong it's i do think however this film is one of the most elegant Mm -hmm. uh, versions of a haunted house story i've ever seen and and there's a style to this that is so uh accomplished and it comes down to wise and the the design of everything. I mean, like you got the the actual set design work um, has ceilings. That's a big part of yeah, it. Yeah, Elliot Scott, who did all the interior sets, like built ceilings, which is unusual, so they could point the cameras upward. And it's just it can increase that feeling of claustrophobia. It's extraordinary in, in certain stuff. Scenes. It's just beautiful. They used oh, that's the other thing. Robert Wise being the king of the split diopter shot, which mm-hmm. I love talking about. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I just do. You, you think he's kidding, but like, this comes up in regular conversation know, in our lives. Just, well, split diopter shot. I know, it's just great. I'm going to get him a t-shirt made that says, ask me about the split diopter shot. It will have to have like two versions of me <laughs> in two different Oh depths, no, he's already designing but it. But both, both in perfect focus because of the split diopter lens. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he uses that throughout all his movies, straight, for, straight all the way through to Star Trek, the motion picture. And you can see... You know, he's one of the directors, I mean, he's not the only one, but he's one of the directors that used it extensively. And it's one of the things that really makes his style so not only distinctive, but his storytelling uh, just really pop. His mm-hmm. beautiful choices like that. And also the one I was sharing with you that we also looked up where he wanted a particular kind of lens and Panavision had one that had distortions in it and he had to sign a waiver that like absolved them of responsibility so he could use that lens and so there's because he wanted the distortion because he wanted the slight distortion and and it's just amazing it's a beautiful beautiful movie and the fact that it's in black and white you know i remember that what was it there's a uh scene where mark way refers to as the purple parlor is that yeah what it is? 
And like the one thing we're thinking is, oh, to be able to see this in color. And yes, it would be interesting, but also I'd also hate, well, certainly I wouldn't want them to do anything to it no, after the fact. No, 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 no. But I'd, I'd also hate that because in a way it leaves it in your head and mm-hmm. the rest of it is, is for you to, to fill in. And the black and white is just It's also amazing. so ornate and overdressed and overdesigned and overcarved and everything that you get but that. But with no vacant baby heads. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to those. We'll get to those. Um, it, it kind of gives you that same feeling that you would get if your eyes were kind of slammed with a whole bunch of different colors and patterns and things. So you still get that feeling of, of like suffocating mm-hmm. inside that house, um, which works really well in setting a mood. And it's sort of, it's one of those situations where you're kind of thrown for a loop in the last act because Markway's wife, shows up and basically is sort of making fun of him and his academic study, which by the way, what is it with like these movies and people whose spouses do not give a hoot about any of their life's work? Like we this always, is what he does. We always wind up saying the same thing, which is how the hell did those people get together in the first place? And no why are clue. they still together? So she kind of throws a wrench in it. And one of the things I kind of love about the movie is that no matter how many times I see it and knowing that her showing up is about to escalate things and kind of kick things off into a weird, like twisted side road. Every time I still wonder if she hadn't shown up, like what is it that they all would have experienced? Would Nell still have kind of ultimately gone down that self-destructive path or would they have had just an unbelievably enlightening, enriching time that like if everybody who was there is there because they want to know about the supernatural, does that make the house more welcoming to them? Or is it something that was just inevitable anyway? I think it's, I mean, personally, I feel like it's very clear, even early in the movie, this is not going to end well at the very least for Nell. Yeah. Because she's already on heading that way. And and knowing what we know, like believing that, yes, there's something going on here, then, yes, the house is definitely interested in her joining. Mm-hmm. So that's going to happen. I mean, I was going to say, actually, right when you were bringing it up, it's really the, the arrival of his wife, of Grace. Grace, good name, too. Mm-hmm. It's really the, Grace's arrival that not only ups the ante, but in some respects is, I think, the most overt indication that something is genuinely happening because her descent into madness is shockingly fast. And And, complete. Yeah, and the the things that happen to her defy easy explanation. How she winds up in the attic and then how she's suddenly outside running around. That all of that happens. She goes from like society lady to Gollum in like (laughs) two hours. Yes. And it's just, it's just bizarre, but it also says, yes, something's definitely happening. And of course, of all the people present, it's the very fact that she is so against everything he does and in defiance of it that you would imagine, well, if there's a spiritual presence in the house, they're going to be mad at this woman because very much so she's, she's, you know, denying their very existence and you almost feel like the house is like, all right, you want proof? Here's proof. 
<laughs> and that's why she goes through the roller coaster ride. Yeah. And, and the others really got it easy. And with Nella, it was more about like, why don't you join us? You know, you want to aim at the tree. Well, Just go ahead and do that. With Nella, it was one of those, like, really ultimately what she wanted was a sense of belonging. And if she had actually felt that with, like, the world of the living, then she would have stayed there. It's like, I think on one level, she almost wanted to have a connection with Theo so that, like, there was There'd somewhere for to go. But, you know, that, that wasn't, either wasn't for her or it scared her or whatever it was. And then thought, well, I could have this connection for Markway. And then that gets pulled out mm -hmm. from under her because he's married. And I like that Luke Luke's, is just there. Yeah, I mean, Luke's never consideration at all. And that makes sense. You know, it's like she doesn't even think to explore mm -hmm. that at all he doesn't mean anything to her and so and so knowing that she has nowhere else to go once she leaves that house she's not going to go back to her sister's house she's not she has no apartment nothing and, and by the way as a side note i love like there's so many things i mean julie harris's perform everybody is great in it julie harris's performance is just stunning and and uh it's kind of amazing actually um now that i think of it they weren't even didn't even get any nominations or anything. It's crazy. Horror anyway, never does. The part where they see her name on the wall and she has that whole reaction. It's my name. They know my name. And it's, there's something so specific and beautiful about that in terms of her character. That's like she's already had everything taken away from her or controlled by her family. Well, all that she has left is her name. And when she sees the name, even though this is the house that ultimately is like where she's going to feel she belongs most, she's so deeply offended and frightened at the idea that they're even taking her name, that they know her identity. And it just, it's great stuff. I just love that. I mean, basically her name is the only thing she really knows about herself. Yeah. And ultimately she decides like when faced with the choice between leaving and not knowing who she is or where she's going to go or what's going to happen and knowing that the only way she can stay is in spirit she decides she'd rather stay than go and it also leads to what i think is one of my favorite endings of any of these kind of movies that's just a beautiful perfect book ending where you have the opening narration it's markway isn't it is the opening narration mm. that does the piece about hill house and those who walk there walk alone and then it's her voice that picks up at the end because now she's joined them and changes the line to we and and that it's her it's just i love that and and to me also in in terms of like film storytelling that to me is the ultimate proof that something is going on because we have been told this story the whole time in in time with the story we have been hearing her thoughts and the idea that we're still hearing her thoughts at the end after her death indicates to me from just a cinematic point of view that yes she's now there in the house and she's dead and she's a spirit and all of this has been true but there's very little that really nails it down like there's no giant hands leaping out of anything <laughs> and you know but the door i think is a good physical example there are a few a few little things 
But again, no major tip-offs. It's atmospheric, and it's a slow burn the right way. What did he do to make this house so evil? Murder, vampirism, cannibalism, drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, mutilation. How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. Well, moving on to 1973 in The Legend of Hell House. And one of the reasons this one is here is because, for all intents and purposes, it's another variation on The Haunting. It's not quite a ver uh, an adaptation of the story because it is technically an adaptation of Richard Matheson. There he is again. He will always be popping up and <laughs> <laughs> popping up in our mentions. He's the author of the 1971 novel called Hell House. And his book is about a group of people that go to a house that is purported to have a strong spiritual element. And there is a, psychologist, a physicist who's there who's investigating the paranormal. He has his wife. There's a medium. There's two mediums, one who's spiritual, one who's physical. And they go to investigate. And in fact, in Matheson's book, it's in Maine. Mm. Which is interesting because this movie is so quintessentially British. Well, this movie is, yeah. Yeah. And the Matheson book, I mean, there's no way this book came out that many people didn't say, oh, do you see how Richard Matheson just totally ripped off Shirley Jackson? Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. Except that his book features some things that she didn't, which is, again, never read it. So I'm only going by research on it. But massive apparently amounts of sadomasochistic sexual uh material in the book so what a delight that man is so his novel was then adapted in 1973 as a british horror film with roddy mcdell clive revel uh, pamela franklin and gail honeycutt and they switched everything to england and it's our group is heading to the belasco house where the guy who ran the place, Emmerich Belasco, evidently indulged in really twisted and bizarre things in his house and has left behind an indelible spiritual imprint that our team is determined to figure out. The, there are some differences, of course, from the haunting story in the sense that now we also have more internal conflict in our group, including the scientific lead who has no uh, sentiment or sympathy toward his team is determined to believe that everything is scientific and mediums, including Roddy McDowell, who also, by the way, is another House on Haunted Hill connection because he really functions more as a version of Alicia Cook's character, yeah. House on Hill. Well, who... the difference here is that Roddy McDowell's character was the only survivor of a previous attempt yeah. to sort of investigate the house. Right. And this is all also being done in an attempt to prove the existence of the supernatural for this really rich old guy who just wants to be sure when he dies there's something waiting for him. Yeah, and the mediums, it wouldn't be media when you're talking about people. I don't think people. so, I think it's still mediums. Uh, the mediums are, are uh, we have Pamela Franklin, who I really think is the standout performance of the film as Tanner. Yeah. Arguably also ventures toward the category of thankless task for the kind of role she has to play. Most tragic. But Roddy McDowell, I think, as much as I love the man and everything, I feel like his presence here... I watched this movie only once before that I can remember before we watched it, many, many years ago, with Andy Hirschberger, my Zombie Mania co-author, and we just found the movie hysterical mainly because the entire thing ultimately, we'll get back around to it, comes down to McDowell just 
yelling like a lunatic at the end and taunting a spirit <laughs> about his height. And that just became a running gag for us for years because he basically spends the entire movie sleepwalking through the thing and acting very confused and then gets his energy up for one big scene at the end and that's it. I mean, you could argue, I suppose, that his role is to sort of represent like a person who is emotionally damaged like he's our emotionally damaged character here he's got ptsd yeah he is a psychic medium he's a physical medium and he is sort of in that state i mean in the plot the plot point to him being in that state is that he for whatever reason agrees to go to the house i don't know he wasn't doing anything else i guess and But he spends all his energy essentially closing himself off so that there is no psychic energy flowing through him because he's like, I'm just not doing this again. I'm just going to make my way through this weekend. And he keeps trying to coach the other medium and tell her, like, look, I know you're young, you're enthusiastic, you really want to, like, go get it and do your best. He's like, but let me tell you, that's a one way ticket to death. Like, just close it off. Wait out the weekend and collect your paycheck at the end of the week. Well, and instead, she's basically targeted by the forces in the house, by Belasco himself, who is the the sadistic spirit at the heart of the house. And basically, she's violated physically and spiritually. In fact, I think one of the most, one of the creepiest moments in the whole movie, and I think done very well by Franklin, but it's a... Uh, uh, she does a phenomenal acting job yeah, in a in a role that is just of, like horrible. Yeah, but like the the scene after she's had the experience where she believes she's having a spiritual sexual experience with the son of Belasco. Turns out Belasco is spiritually posing as the ghost of his own son, who somehow tells her that the only way that his spirit can be freed from the house as if he experiences physical love. Right. Which is like, ladies, yeah. that is a line. <laughs> right. Like, that is but, a line, and I could see that from a that, mile away. that scene after that, where she's smiling and laughing, and it's like, really, it's him in there. Not only does she do that well, but it's like one of the creepiest, most effective moments of like a character possessed I've ever seen. Mm. In a movie that otherwise I don't think is all that good. It's not, this is no classic. It's like, I remember another thing, by the way, is music is partly by Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson. Here's Doctor Who again. People know from the um, BBC Radiophonic Workshop and creators of the Doctor Who theme. And when the movie began, one of the things you said right away is, was this actually a theatrical release? Because it looked, the topography, everything looked very Mm TV-like to you. And of course, I do say that a lot. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And the thing is, the topography carries through because, as we discovered very quickly, this is the movie that will never not let you know what time it is. Because throughout the entire film, every possible moment, it will tell you when it's 2.47 a.m. or 11.53 p.m. or Saturday or whatever it is. You will you can set your watch by this movie. I wonder if that's where they got the idea for Paranormal Activity. I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know how many other. Well, the thing is, we've already seen a number of movies that play like on the spiritual idea of, medium possession, yeah. time stamping. 
By the way, that's one of the things I really, it's such a shame I wish you could handle found footage because I think the first couple paranormal activities are really good. I too um, wish I could handle found footage. If they yeah. could do found footage with a steady cam. Yeah, I it's know. Like, look, Apple's putting out all these commercials now about how steady their handheld camera right. work is on the iPhone. So I don't think that anyone has an excuse for shaky cam footage in a found footage movie anymore. And if you all could just like cut it out, I would very much appreciate it. There are also elements of the gothic. There's a scene with Tanner wearing like the standard flowing white dress at least once. A lot mm -hmm. of walking around in bare feet in all these movies, which you've pointed out, you know, put some damn shoes on put people. Put some shoes on. I'm sorry. First of all, it's not your house. I know. Like you're in someone else's house. Slippers at least. Socks. Slippers. Anything. I understand that socks, maybe they make your feet a little too slippery. You're worried you'll go whoop and fall down the stairs. I am very clumsy. I get that. Use slippers with a nice little grip on the bottom. Or, you know, shoes. It's not your house. It's not even like a and b or like a hotel. Like, I wouldn't even walk into the lobby of like a Hampton Inn in my bare feet. So why are you walking through an abandoned house that's just full of dust and dirt and shrapnel and bugs and, and like evil ghosts. sadistic ghosts. You could step on an evil ghost. She like walks barefoot into like a torture basement. Yes. Like, hello, that is not a good idea. You also mentioned, by the way, uh, a couple episodes ago, you were saying how Dracula AD 72 is like, if anyone asks you what the 70s were, mm -hmm. good point to this. You also at one point turned to me and said the Tanner, Pamela Franklin's character, you said she's the 70s in a person. And that really is, as as our spiritual medium with yes. all of her flowing outfits and everything, she's in layers. It's very, very much 70s. She's amazing. Her acting's amazing. The look's amazing. She really commits to what she's doing. And it actually just makes me hate the movie more because the movie is very mean to her. Extremely. And cruel and as much pain and fear and whatever is experienced by everyone else in that house, it's experienced by her times a hundred for everybody else. There's also, unlike Mark Way's character, Clive Revel's character of Dr. Barrett is singularly uninterested in caring about the fate of it. I mean, like literally within minutes of her being killed, because yes... Dear listeners, she dies before the movie's even over. They don't even care. Mm -mm. They don't care at all. And by the end of it, his whole thing is like at one point he actually says, "You mind if I say I told you so?" Or like the the attitude. He's I, a jerk. One of the notes I wrote down is uh, Dr. Lionel Barryman. Uh, Dr. Lionel Bar Barrymore. Dr. Lionel Barrett is the embodiment of the unwavering confidence of the mediocre white male, <laughs> and that is really what's going on here. Because he goes in, he's that guy who walks into the situation knowing his theory is correct. His theory is fact. And now he's going to show you just how fact it is. There's also a diopter shot in this, at least one. Um, <laughs> but then there's also this incredibly... But do you like diopter shots? Is like that a thing shot. you like? There's also this incredibly silly close-up shot at one point where McDowell and Revel literally come practically nose-to-nose -nose kissing. For like some weird dialogue scene. I don't know what the hell's going on in that. that, But it's like there's weird shots. There's a nice little reflection in a teapot that you noticed. I mean, this is not a movie where style is no. paramount. 
I, I will say I do feel that it fits in this episode, not just as a variation on the theme, mm. and also as an important component to where we go next, yes. as we've discovered more this time. But it does have atmosphere. I do feel it has atmosphere, especially if you're a fan of a particular era of British horror filmmaking. It has atmosphere, but it is seriously lacking in comparison, certainly, to something. Like, if you're going to compare it to The Haunting, there's no there's no you contest can't. there. You cannot compare. And by the end, you actually see one of the other things that's kind of interesting in this, though, is there's, among many other struggles, there's kind of the clash between science and spirituality. I did find it kind of interesting how religious Tanner is. Mm. Like, I suppose it makes sense that religion would come in if you believe in spirits, but somehow I always feel like those two things don't always overlap. Like, just because you believe in spiritual things doesn't mean you, quote unquote, believe in God. Yeah, she sees herself but, as a conduit for God. Yes. And and then Barrett is setting up this big, huge, generic machine trademark to to work on, like, you know, the pulses. And, and even at one point, Talk Doctor Who... Pertwee era stuff here he actually refers to reversing the polarity at one point so his whole idea is pull a lever on a machine and we'll shut down the evil ghosts except that it doesn't quite work that way apparently the real way you shut down the evil ghost is to yell at him and accuse him of having baby short man syndrome <laughs> there We'll be right back. Can I keep my nubchuck? We'll see, honey. Violet oh, shrimp, little baby God. short man. We'll see. And then, uh, you know, basically insulting his manhood. Because the thing is, that is ultimately what this whole story is about. Talk about the toxic masculinity. This whole story this is... This is the lingering presence of toxic yes, masculinity. This whole story is about toxic masculinity, so toxic... That it has infected an entire house and will not leave that house until someone yells at it enough to destroy its sense of ego. Which is also, I mean... He's sort as, of Aleister Crowley-like also. Yeah, as, as much as that makes it sound like ultimately the movie has some kind of grand message oh definitely not it does right. not because no. the it, movie isn't aware of it no yeah it is in fact one of the dumbest endings possible that it turns out that this guy was just mad because he was short that's it and not only that but he also has somehow had the foresight to think what if somebody brings a big flippy lever switch into the house <laughs> To do a big, like, electromagnetic pulse and zap all the mean bad man energy out of it. He's I better make sure that they preserve my corpse and put it in a room that is lined to protect it from the EMP. And, like, that's why they think the, the spirits are gone. They've defeated. It's like, no, they haven't. Because the weird short guy, like, somehow could see the future. And the future was a dumb box with a switch. The only other thing is that this movie takes place thanks to the absolutely impossible to stop captions that tell us what time it is. I'll also note, by the way, this is now, I think, the third time almost that I've nearly gotten Natalie to spit out her drink because <laughs> I seem to be timing it poorly. Or, or I was well. just imagining a supercut of the movie that cut out everything except just the, time. the time. So if somebody is, you know, still run 10 minutes or so. <laughs> to 
enough at editing, I would like a, a cut of the film that's only the scenes with the time. But, but I digress. <laughs> but I will point out that the movie actually ends at 4.59 p.m. on December 24th. So technically, kind of, sort of, this is a Christmas movie. Yeah! <laughs> what is happening to She's her? She's in a fugue the... state. Let's get her to the sofa. What is it? Get a blanket. Fill the house with children. Finally, in terms of our triple haunting, we come to the remake for The Haunting. The Haunting from 1999. And the year of terrible haunt remakes, because that's also the year of the House on Haunted Hill remake that shouldn't exist. Jan de Bont did this one. Uh, Liam Neeson steps into the Richard uh, Johnson role. Another thing, too, about this is the the need that some remakes have that I can't understand. You're already doing a remake. Why do you change character names? It's like on the one level, if you're doing a serious departure, I could totally understand the desire to say, well, we're going to make our own mark. We're going to change but if you're doing something that's actually so much a d direct remake, what's the point of then changing? And only the, one name. They only change well, one. Well, they also change Eleanor's last name. The last name her, is neither here nor there. Her, I can understand that. But so instead of Markway, he's Dr. David Marrow. But Luke Sanderson's the same and Theo's the same and Eleanor is Eleanor, although now she's Vance instead of Lance. In our cast, we've got Liam Neeson as Marrow. Catherine Zeta-Jones is a far more overtly lesbian or bi or sexually Well, she mentions fluid. having both a boyfriend right. and a girlfriend. Right, so, exactly. I mean... Bi. Like you've mentioned, bi erasure very yes. often. So she's not lesbian, she's bi. Mm -hmm. Owen Wilson is our Luke Sanderson character, who just is Owen Wilson and that's fine. And Lily Taylor, a person who I've never thought has any talent other than being Lily Taylor. Sorry, Lily. As Lily Taylor. I'm sorry, <laughs> as Eleanor. I mean, really, I do believe that the casting is excellent. It's, yeah, it's great casting. She's the person I would pick to replace Julie Harrison in a 1999 version of The Haunting. Absolutely. And here it is. You've got your wish. A couple nice little things here and there. Bruce Dern is Dudley, the caretaker. I do like the way the caretaker thing and this, the classic speech is actually played for humor in this a bit. A little nice And it is play. almost like a line for line. It's one of the very yeah. few things yeah. that they actually just port directly from the original is Mrs. Dudley giving her speech you know, the speech about when she isn't, 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 is not in the house. By the way, there's another element to this that I, I have no intention of ever exploring beyond this reference, but there's a 2002 TV miniseries Stephen King wrote, Rose Red. Mm -hmm. Rose Red started as the first version of this. Spielberg and Stephen King were working together on a new version of The Haunting, and King wrote his adaptation of Jackson's novel, and then that fell apart, and he just decided, I'm going to file off the serial number and call it Rose Red. <laughs> and that's where Rose Red comes from. Meanwhile, this eventually developed into this version. And the weird thing about it is, so we, we revisited this a couple times recently. We saw it in September, and then we saw it again just a few days ago, really. And the first time, I enjoyed it more than I think I ever have. I, I saw We saw it once or twice before. Yeah. And, and I will say, like we were saying earlier today, it's not a bad movie to revisit in the sense that it's not a good movie and, and not even quite like mystery science theater level necessarily, but it's a fun movie to watch with uh, an awareness that you're not watching great cinema and you can have fun with it. The way I described it is it's a watchable bad movie. Yeah, but it, it is definitely 
As is very often the case, it is definitely a very, very thin shadow of the original haunting. It sacrifices all of the subtlety and atmosphere in favor of extraordinarily over-the-top and incredibly silly CGI and FX sequences. It's a movie that seems to want to be like a summer blockbuster. It turns the spiral staircase sequence from the original, which was one of the few like really dynamic physical sequences Mm. in the original movie, but still very atmospheric into this lengthy, extraordinary action sequence. And the CGI in this, like many movies of that era has not aged. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not entirely the fault of anyone working on it at the time. It's the fault of the way the technology ages in a way that practical effects don't. Yeah, like I, if it but, were otherwise a phenomenal movie just with laughable CGI, I wouldn't fault the movie for it. But it is just like another thing on the list of things that that make it pretty terrible. But some of the things that I think cut to the heart of what's wrong with this one for us is it became clear watching it again that I see this movie now is the TriStar Godzilla of the haunting movies. (laughs) Now, when the 1998 Godzilla came out, I was fascinated by it at the time because it was really sold over the top as an America. It's an American Godzilla now. And then the design of the creature and then the, the plot. And I suddenly, as a huge fan of what I'm about to say, as I think I've said before, I suddenly realized, even in the theater at the time, wait a minute, this isn't really Godzilla so much as it's Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I found out after the fact that that was in fact true, that many of the people working on it were kind of thinking, well, Beast was the movie that inspired Godzilla, that was the American Godzilla, that's what we're kind of doing. And really what's bizarre is the TriStar Godzilla is less a remake of Godzilla and more a remake of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. As it turns out, the 1999 Haunting is less a remake of The Haunting and more a remake of Legend of Hell House. Because all the things that are not there in the 63 original that this movie adds are much more the thematic and plot points and beats that are in Legend of Hell House, including the idea that you need to uncover a mystery about the possession in the house, which is, there's no mystery in the in the original Haunting, it's just the way the house is and it has a history there's also the fact that the backstory is evil and not just tragic the way that the original was yeah and there's also an element of sadism and torture in both both the hugh crane in this version and the belasco and legend of hell house are committing atrocities against other people in this story it's toward children nobody wears shoes in anything no shoes And one of the other things, another thing that actually bothers a great deal is, as we already talked about, Mark Way as a character in the original is earnest in his desire to uncover the truth about paranormal activity. Mm-hmm. As and, it were. And cares about the people working with him. And while occasionally I would still say, yes, there are, there are moments where clearly he's seeing, he's not seeing the human element in favor of his scientific uh, exploration. He's still sensitive everything wants to get get Eleanor sent home. I mean, that's a quality that people have when they're hyper focused right. on something, not necessarily from an uncaring place. It's just he's just so focused but, on what he's doing. But in this film, one of the things that's almost offensive when you love the originals. It's not almost, it is offensive. Is that Liam Neeson's marrow is not exploring the paranormal. He's not investigating whether the supernatural exists. He's doing a study in fear 
and is deliberately lying to everyone that he's brought to the house in order to create the circumstances necessary to make them afraid. This particular story proceeds from a character who is creating an atmosphere of uh, misdirection and lies and is preying on the people that he's studying in a way completely unlike Mark Way. It also struck me that there's gaslighting in this far Oof. beyond anything that happens in yeah. the original. And the basically that also means the focus of his study now is not the house that they're in, which is what Markway's study was about. But the people. His study is the people and what he can do to them to mm-hmm. make them afraid. It's it's a horrible situation. And we realize too that even though in Hell House our sort of stand-in jerk researcher guy is genuinely trying to prove a theory that theory basically being this is just nothing but energy and energy can be scientifically dealt with that's sort of who he who marrow is in the remake of the haunting that he is just so confident in not only himself and in his theories but also the impact it's going to have on the world when he can really like zero in on what causes fear to happen and then how you can make yourself completely unafraid of things. By the way, another part of the, the recurring element of toxic masculinity yeah. I keep pointing out. He's also a poster boy for that. Mm. And particularly his last time we watched it, it occurred to me like how you reacted at one point. There's a moment where, and Liam Neeson's a tall guy for real. There's a moment where I think it's Catherine Zeta-Jones, yes. Theo, confronts him about the truth of all this. And he starts yelling at her. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to do something here. Like how important his work is. Like two inches from her face. Yeah, but he's he's towering over her. He's physically threatening her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she smacks him. And she's fortunate that he's sane enough to stop. Because it's frightening in that moment. That's actually like really the only genuinely scary thing about it. And there's nothing is paranormal him. at all. Marrow's the scary one. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the other stuff is ridiculous. It's really and not it's scary. Like, this trades all the subtlety and creepiness for giant hands and fanged beds. And, and like weird baby ghost children carved into the fireplace who have these like vacant pleading eyes. And also like the previous house, even the legend of hell house house, it may be busy and look like an old West saloon, but it looks like a creepy, shadowy house. This place has a massive mirror music box room. It also, for no discernible reason, has a hallway that is uh, like made out of books that are stepping stones through... What is that room? Yeah. What is that? Like, at least in Hell House, it's clearly like a creepy, gothic, like, monstrosity Thing. What is with the book stepping stone? The book room? stepping stones and like the weird music room, and also even the rooms where they're staying. It's like in the original haunting, yeah, everything's ornate and over the top, but they're also just like regular rooms. But like Eleanor and Theo are in adjacent rooms. I guess it's one of the only other plot points they actually kept. Which is the two of them are in adjacent rooms that share a bathroom in the middle. Mm -hmm. And when like their first night, there's something scary happening. Like Eleanor runs into Theo's room and they experience the scary thing together. Right. And 
like they do that which you can't share with people listening your your vacant uh carved baby head thing i've really developed what i think is a spot-on facial impression of the little baby face carvings in the fireplace let me tell you there is no application for this whatsoever other than making you laugh it makes me laugh though because it is good <laughs> it's really good we should do some pictures side by side <laughs> except you know then that will live on the internet forever you don't need that kind of grief so i'm but the rooms that they're staying in are like like banquet hall size with these like huge ceilings also like the cathedral like windows it like it's everything is so much more on the nose in this where it doesn't yeah. need to be it's and like i said the, also the purgatory doors well that's the other thing it's like the need to turn this into a mystery too where something needs to be revealed where it turns out there's some story to uncover here this is scooby-doo and the legend of hell house yeah and again legend of hell house because lily taylor's final stand against hugh crane at the end is roddy mcdowell's final stand against belasco yelling at him about the truth of what she's discovered and let me tell you taylor does not have the chops to be the big action hero at the end, delivering those lines. They all fall flat. They're terrible. She does that with something like, you go to hell. And, you know, it's just, oh, it's awful. And then uh, it's a Coraline ending. We're all debating, thank you, Eleanor. And they all go <laughs> flying away. And ends like has a terrible flat final scene with Bruce Stern as Dudley, where he's like, "Well, did you figure out? You know what? It's like that's where we're going to end. Is this again? Like you said, the Legend of Hell House ending is flat and uninteresting. Yep. This is the Legend of Hell House with like a thin veneer of the haunting painted over it. And I would have enjoyed it more if it turned out that Hugh Crane was an angry ghost because he was very short. <laughs> I think that's really the only way you make the 1999 haunting better is if Ukraine is just even shorter than Belasco. A few other last things, I guess, about this mm. one is another thing we disliked is it not only is it on the nose, it's on the nose from the moment it begins. Like the dialogue. The harpsichord the scene is what I'm talking about. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the fact that it lets you know immediately that something supernatural is going on, it leaves no room for doubt. It doesn't have any slow burn. It's there it is. There's that. And that's one thing. The other thing, too, well, is... Also, I will I will add with that harpsichord. Yeah. Like the harpsichord bit where it's clear the house is tightening the harpsichord to injure someone. Basically, what they do right in that moment, it's like, what if right at the beginning of the movie, everybody walks in the house and while it's behind their backs, the ghost of Ukraine turns and winks at the audience through the camera. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like. Right at the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, and the other thing that gets me is there's like a moment of dialogue that you pointed out both times, which is like there's a part where Neeson's character, who is deliberately, as we said, constructing a, a study that is intended to deceive the people that he's brought in. Which says, his supervisor's like, maybe that's not a good idea. And says, you don't tell the rats they're in a maze. Yeah. It's almost minutes later that Theo and Eleanor are going through, I think, the book stepping yes. stone room and says, hey, we're like rats in a maze. It's <laughs> like, it's terrible. It's like right away. It, you... re it really is like five minutes later. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, that's blown. Oh, yes. When it comes down to it, they also have to make Eleanor family. Ugh. That part of the entire revelation is that Carolyn was, as she says, my great, great grandmother. She is related to them. 
And therefore, all of this is destined in a way that the original, it didn't have to be. It was that she's the latest. Basically, in the original movie, this is a house that is steeped in spiritual energy and has a long history of tragedies and presences in that house. And it will continue to collect people and stories. Mm. And that's it. This one has one specific dark mystery and everyone involved is intrinsically connected in a way that doesn't allow for this to be a slow development of different characters and stories. It's one specific thing. And ultimately, the worst part of it is that Roger Ebert gave this a thumbs up. And in the same episode, they gave Drop Dead Gorgeous two thumbs down. <clears throat> if you could see my face right now. Finally, on this special Halloween episode, we're going to tell you a little bit about our initial reaction to Halloween Kills. Now, I think anybody that has listened to me over the years on Doctor of the Dead, and certainly on this, knows how I feel about the Halloween movies. And probably also knows, like any Halloween fan, that a good 75 to 80% of everything Halloween is not that great. <laughs> In some cases, pretty bad. So when you get one that's decent, it's nice. Sometimes you just want to spend a little more time with Michael Myers. And yes, that means that, yes, I will rewatch Halloween 5. Comedy cops and all from time to time. I love me some comedy cops. Uh, 6, not so much. 8, not so much. But almost all the others, eminently revisitable in their own ways. And most recently, a whole new team, the director David Gordon Green, brought back Jamie Lee Curtis for the big anniversary and started a new trilogy that basically said, in keeping with a long-standing Halloween series tradition, nothing after the first movie counts, and we're doing yet another separate timeline. And we talked about this back toward the end of Doctor of the Dead and did a whole episode mm -hmm. on Halloween 2018. Which we found enjoyable. And i was been looking forward very much to this one. I've also talked about probably in the past how they should have put it out a year ago when they had it ready, but they wanted to hold it for theaters. And then when the time came to put it out this year, they said, guess what? Theaters and Peacock for streaming. Yeah. Because they're finally accepting something reality. So we watched Halloween Kills. And I don't have a lot to say about it because it was extraordinarily disappointing. It was almost shocking how the team that put together such a very nice sequel in the 2018 one could so completely miss the mark and deliver something that felt so wrong and one of the things we've often talked about is Michael, the character of Michael Myers, and the fact that the way his motivation works and the way his behavior works, one of the reasons I hate the Rob Zombie movies is it turns him into a white trash hillbilly icon and turns the deaths into cruelty and mean-spiritedness beyond all reason. And in this, it's much more akin to Rob Zombie's approach than anything else, certainly not Carpenter's. And there's a brutality that is unappealing and a non-existent story because it's the middle chapter of a trilogy that has to have a third part, they decided, so they can't do much of anything in this. And they also bring back a lot of legacy characters, including Charles Cyphers' Bracket and Kyle Richards' as Lindsay, and waste every one of them. So it was extremely disappointing. It's not the worst Halloween movie, but that's only because six exists. Yep. But it's 
pretty darn close. I would watch Halloween 5 three times before I would watch <laughs> this one again. What's crazy, though, is that the case with a lot of sequels, when you have a movie that's become a, a longstanding franchise, a lot of times the reason that the quality will be so variable is because you have different people who are helming each movie. Right. That you had this original idea and now another person is going to try it. And now a third person comes in to try another one. It's one of the reasons I love the Scream movies so much is because it's Wes Craven all the way through. And, and it remains to be seen what's going to happen with Five, the, yeah. the first one made without him. We will surely talk about but it. That's what makes this all the more, like, bizarrely disappointing because it's the same team who made Halloween in 2018 and it could not be farther from the quality of the film that that was. And there's every indication that they basically felt like they got too big for their britches there. Like, it's like, oh, you have the opportunity to do more than one. We're going to do a trilogy. It's like, it sounds like if we're lucky... They had two movies in them. That's presuming that the Halloween ends, which is going to be their final shot in this trilogy, actually has something of substance to recommend it. There's some interesting parallels in history, too, and that this one is their Halloween 2, much like the original Halloween 2. Sidelines Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie for the entire length of the film, pretty much, in a hospital. And that's because they literally had nothing for her to do in this movie, because it's very clear that whatever story they had in mind did not include a middle chapter in this way. So she just gets put in a bed and occasionally make a speech Loomis style about the, you know, the true uh, power of the boogeyman and the fear. And there's also an extended like 15 minute sequence where the town uh, deciding to engage in a little like mob justice goes after the wrong uh, escape Smith's Grove patient. And we spend an entire amount of time in the film with no Michael Myers and no Halloween while they all hunt down an innocent man. Yeah, it's like a Frankenstein mob meets Keystone cops like running through. You've got the like sad sheriff whose hat gets trampled and he seems sadder about that hat. Than he does about anything else that has happened in either movie. His poor hat. Basically, Halloween kills is just chaos, brutality, senseless violence, which I know you're saying, well, it's a slasher movie, Natalie. Like, of course, there's violence. It's violent in a way that just truly is senseless. It makes no sense. It's for no reason. It serves no plot. It doesn't do anything. The thing that I've been going over and over in my head, too, is this idea that we watch a lot of these movies. We enjoy a lot of slasher movies. And, like, what I keep thinking in my head is, should we not be questioning this more? Like, is there something about this? The idea that we derive entertainment from basically a movie that says, here's now a list of people you're going to watch die. And my argument often is yes, but very often in those movies, the killing is sort of almost perfunctory. Like you see it and then you cut away. Yes, there's some gore in these movies and that's sort of the point too. Tom Savini comes in and does, you know, thing. And then you move on, but it's almost cartoonish. And then in my head, I even continue the argument, I think, but yeah, but is that part of the problem? Have we somehow desensitized too much where I say that a cartoonish death in a slasher is okay, but somehow when it's depicted with actual genuine empathy for the person, as it is often in this movie, Mm. where you watch characters watch each other die. More than um, once. More than once. And lament the loss of a loved one. 
And I think this is not what I want to see. But on the one hand, that is more real. And yet on the other hand, I would say that's not what I think the Michael Myers character of the Halloween movies is. And to be honest, I don't have an answer for whether that's good or bad. I just know that this feels wrong. It feels unpleasant. It's not entertaining. And it's not what I want to see in a Halloween movie. It's also like just weirdly silly, but not in a good way. Like it's a lot of like melodramatic overacting and like by the end of it, like you get Anthony Michael Hall just like frenetic. I mean, like I like it's not even like he's acting. It's like the actual person thinks that there's some kind of psychotic killer on the loose and he is losing his dang mind about it and just screaming in the streets. And it's like, it's not even like acting. Here's what amazes me too, is that Carpenter is involved in this to the extent of actually doing the music for these music, which is still fine. And like endorsing them in a way that he almost never did throughout the course of the rest of the series. Now, the first time around, I can believe it because the 2018 one, was a nice continuation from that first film. And musically, a lot of cool stuff he did with his son. Right. And clearly showed a team that understood thematically and otherwise what made that first movie great. Like you just pointed out, all the more bizarre yeah. that they seem to have forgotten it all with this one. Because one of the other things about this is like the movie opens right away. Remember he was burning down the first and at the end of the last one where you knew if they wanted to, he can get out of that. And now he like slaughters an entire team of firefighters and he's using like one of their power tools and like, you know, getting like uh, cutting up their face. And another person, he like stabs directly in the person's eye and like blood is everywhere. And all I can think of is if this is a team that knows what made Halloween great, there was no blood in Halloween, almost none. Some of the only blood you see in the original film is the cuts that Jamie Lee's that Laurie gets when fighting him at the end, there's strangulations. There's like Bob's stabbing is done in the shadows. And then the, another strangulation. There is no violence depicted in an extended way on screen in that lurid zom- Rob Zombie-esque and modern way to say, don't you want to enjoy the gore? That's not the Michael Myers character. But this character is like like reveling in destroying human bodies in a way that is not that character or this series. And they've created some new mythology where like with more violence, he ascends into like a supernatural form that gets stronger. The more the chaos there is, you know, we saw that in a clip and I can't remember now if that actually was one of those lines of dialogue that made it into the movie or not. Cause I don't remember her actually saying that. Did she? Yeah, she did. I think at that point you were so glazed over I know, that you I was, were like, I, I think this is almost done. But like another side thing, by the way, they did some kind of like little, I don't know, social media contest or something. I didn't bother showing it to you where they had like a, like you could win a chance to get killed by Michael and a little extra clip and some guy won it. And they did the little scene where like he's running away, hides under a table and Michael catches him and then proceeds like while the guy's like screaming for a prolonged period of time, this was the fan who won the little thing. Right. Michael like grabs him through the like tablecloth and pushes his head down until he literally smashes his head into the ground and blood is everywhere. 
And then afterward, the guy gets up at the end of the clip and says, that was awesome. So I'm thinking, you're not a fan because your first reaction should be, Michael Myers never does anything like that. At least not the one from the original film. Now he's this like unholy engine of bodily destruction. That's not why I watch that. I mean, Jason, I can believe, would do that. But not Michael Myers. And, mm. and you know, again, does that mean this is just another take? Yes. And there are also people out there who are saying this is awesome. But I think more than anything else, what bothered me so much about it is how nicely they did their first one and how completely they failed to live up to the promise of that with this one. And now they have one more to go before their take on this series is done. And the question now is, do they genuinely have a story to tell in that final one and this was just their spinning wheels movie because they committed to a trilogy? Or are we going to get even more from this because it does seem like this one's doing well, which means they're going to be emboldened to go even further? I don't know. It's like, I hope that they have a better movie in mind for the third one. But at this point, I'm not convinced that that's possible. There's also like no town left because he basically just like murdered the whole neighborhood. So I think it's best to just move everyone out of Haddonfield and just say, you know what? Clearly, Michael, you would like this town for yourself and you can have it. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arl T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at mblatofsky, that's mblitofsky, and Arnold at Dr. The Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Haunting, 1963, Legend of Hell House, 1973, the Haunting, 1999, and Halloween Kills, 2021. The house tried to kill me. It almost succeeded. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. You cannot deny terror. You cannot look the other way. You have to face the supernatural. Face the chilling mysteries of forces you cannot understand or control. When... The haunting holds you in its spell. The haunting. The haunting. The haunting. The haunting.